A Little Night Music, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by Hugh Wheeler, opened on Broadway at the Schubert Theater February 25th, 1973. A romantic farce about the lives of the upper middle class in early 20th century Sweden, the production was inspired by the 1955 Ingmar Bergman film Smiles of a Summer Night. Dramatizing an evening of sexual musical chairs, Sondheim's score features his best-known song, Send in the Clowns, and it is replete with three-quarter time melodies. Featuring a plot that's complicated and clever about couples mostly mismatched at the start, who end up with more desirable partners by the final curtain, for his efforts, Sondheim won a record-setting fourth consecutive Tony Award in 1973 for the season's best score. With us today is music director, conductor Christy Childs Twilly, whose work includes productions of five guys named Mo, Newsies, The Gospel of Colonus, Big Fish, and Minnie's Boys, as well as the Sondheim musicals Sweeney Todd, Into the Woods, and A Little Night Music. Actor and director Brianna Borger, whose work on stage includes appearances in Southern Gothic, Billy Elliot, Twelfth Night, Parade, and as Anna in the international tour of The King and I, a role for which she was nominated for the Jeff Award as Best Actress in a Musical. In productions by Stephen Sondheim, she has appeared in Assassins, Into the Woods, Forum, Sweeney Todd, and A Little Night Music. And Nick Bowling, Associate Artistic Director of Timeline Theatre Company and the recipient of eight Jeff Awards for Outstanding Direction for his productions of The History Boys, The Normal Heart, Fiorello, This Happy Breed, and The Crucible at Timeline, Ragtime at the Marriott Theater, another part of the Forest at Eclipse Theater, and the Chicago premiere of Sondheim on Sondheim at Porchlight Music Theater. Welcome everyone to the roundtable. I'm so happy to uh, talk with you about this, um, a show that has over the years really grown to be a dear, dear favorite of mine. Um, I like to start with where we all first encountered these Sondheim pieces. For me, I, I do remember it was it was not an ideal situation. It was a it was a, probably a community theater production of a little night music. And even then, I remembered thinking as as I've grown to really understand with this particular show, you you need top notch everything to make this uh, particular musical work. Um, it it, uh, it it just asks so much and it has grown so much richer and richer uh, throughout the years. Where did you all first uh, encounter A Little Night Music? Uh, Brianna. I first encountered it um, actually by accident from playing for auditions. Um, I had to play the Miller's son for someone and oh. I thought to myself, what is this from? And then I just started investigating the musical and I fell in love with it because it's just really my type of score. Uh, it's so enchanting, you know, so that's how I found it, auditions. <laughs> had had you ever uh, seen or played that song before or did somebody just plop down that Sondheim music? Oh yeah, somebody just you. plopped it down and I said, <laughs> okay, all, all right, right. <laughs> got this and I'll follow you. But, um, you know, I knew Send in the Clowns, of course, but I didn't know any anything else from the musical and I hadn't heard a lot about it. And that song is what made me go search search it out or seek it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Brianna? Uh, I was a little Sondheim nerd from birth. My parents played the Follies record nonstop in my house, which was actually my first introduction to Sondheim. 
and I loved it. Um, and so I would scour whenever PBS was doing great performances, I would tape anything that aired. And I had on VHS, the 1990 New York City Opera production. Uh, and that and Sunday in the Park and Into the Woods basically were just my solid rotation. And I actually found it on YouTube, that production in particular, and rewatched it yesterday in preparation for this. And it was, it was so much fun. It was great. So, I mean, I was listening to that original cast album since I was 10, I think, you know, before I knew most of the innuendo and jokes, but I just adored the the score and the sentiment behind it. You were such a cooler music theater nerd than I was because <laughs> my, my mom, who was my influencer, gave me, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein. So I had all of those, some Jerome Kern, you know, some Irving Berlin, but she didn't get much past the sort of early 60s really in her taste. So um, my first experience, interestingly, was also that New York opera production because um, uh, my teacher in undergrad in 1990, somehow got a, a I guess I was on PBS or something and uh, played it in a class and we watched it. I remember we watched it probably over two classes and uh, I, I thought it was amazing. I, my first experience with it though was really on probably like Barbara Streisand and I, and I remember like, feeling like I discovered Sondheim myself because I had that Bronco Strides and Broadway album with, you know, whatever, a, a several Sondheim shows. In it. And I was like, this person is amazing. I'm going to become the world's aficionado on this, on this new composer named Stephen Sondheim. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's how I saw it all. And I think that for me, it was also one of the earliest Sondheim shows aside from something like West Side Story that I um, was brought to and, and notified, this is a musical by this man, Stephen Sondheim. Mm -hmm. And yet today, I don't, I, I think it was a very deceptive introductory production to be introduced to Stephen Sondheim because it is so atypical uh, of what he kind of does and the way that it fell in coming after the wallops of of uh, of company and follies in his particular journey, um, so I don't think of this sometimes as like this is like super Sondheim to me, 
do you do you do you see do you feel the same way or does this feel like it's yeah no when you're thinking Sondheim it's it's I think it definitely is is set apart from the other shows um both it it's stylistically and tonally is so different from anything else I feel like it's the least cynical of of his shows and I think what the the more I've been thinking about it and thinking about my experience doing it in the past and the wisdom you gain as you get older and are able to look back and be like, oh, that, that's what I was grasping onto, is I think it's, it's a lot more optimistic. And I love that it's, it's about characters who all choose to change at the end and choose to stray from the path that they are on. Whereas I think a lot of his shows are about someone just like barreling toward what they want and achieving it at the end, right? Mm -hmm. For better or for worse. And I think there's just like a really light charm to a little night music that everyone knows that they are on this path and they are following this path toward their goal. And then every single person veers away from it at the end, which I just think is so sweet and uplifting and happy. It's just such a happy ending <laughs> for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think it strays in that way. I was going to jump in and say that um, the thing that is Sondheim-ish though, and very Sondheim is how conceptual it is. It's not just that he chose, well, first of all, it's, it's based on the three smiles. And so he takes three and puts three everywhere, not just in the, in the music, but in every single, I mean, the opening number is a trio of three songs. Every, almost every song in the show involves three people, even if it's a duet, inevitably those two people are talking about a third person. And so it plays out like a trio. And so in that way, you know, I can't think of many other composers who want to write something so conceptual and who sort of create their concept and say, we are basically sticking in this concept all the way through. And I love what you're saying, Brianna, about how kind of romantic and positive it ends, but it is cynical in so many ways. I mean, think about, yeah. you know, like the, the cynicism in a way, even the positive ending is almost like a happy ending for, for a cynic because it's ridiculously positive. It's like everything sort of happens magically for it to land happy for the, for the characters. But in a way, just moments before that was not gonna happen, you know, moments before, Desiree had, had begged Frederick kind of, you know, let's, let's get, let's you and I be together. And Frederick says, no, nah, I'm going to be with my 20 year old wife who I, and I'm going to choose her instead. So there is an incredible amount of, and Madame Armfeld is, is nothing if not the biggest cynic of love and all that, but you're right there. It, it's, it, he flips it though at the ending in a kind of a, charming but almost like wink of a way that says i had to finish it this way because it's a comedy you know it's a romance and i wanted it to be it couldn't end it in a dark way that i probably was inclined to and i love the way nick you said it ends sort of with a wink because i feel like there's a wink consistently throughout yeah. the entire show but that idea of three also happens with the night waltz which is sort of this main melody that we hear in the overture and then it comes back in the second act as night waltz two and then or i think it's labeled as night waltz one and then two but we hear it 
three times in a score that, as Michael mentioned, is constantly in some kind of triple time, either regular triple time or compound triple, when we mm -hmm. have those songs that are moving about a little uh, more quickly. as a musician and as an and as an MD this score is very different I think about how um, when I when I did this show I played with a number of string players that I know really well and normally played chamber music with and we just sort of fell into the sway or the swing of this music so easily and um, there's something about it, about its symphonic quality that also lends itself to like what I call symphonic opera, which is what the singers are, are delivering could easily be an instrumentalist line. And then you hear them mimic it per, uh, perfectly in the orchestra. So to me, this does stand out as, as something different, but I also love its comical nature it's it's such a funny show to me <laughs> i think it's also on the on the music side of it i think a lot of sondheim sounds so wonderful and you don't realize until you are having to present it and perform it how complicated it is it's not it orally blends into something that's magnificent and you're like oh that's great and then you look at the music and you're like holy <laughs> crap but this score, I think I always resonated as a young musician to the fact that it does sound complex and it does sound really hard. And those harmonies are really crunchy sometimes. And I think it's it's really satisfying to listen to and to watch and just like be in awe of like, I know that is very difficult and they are doing it really well and it's really clever. And it's brilliant how he just uses woodwinds and strings to support everything. And it does it so perfectly. Like we're not missing all those other things that we normally hear brilliantly in Soundheim, Soundheim musicals like brass and, you know, percussion. Like yeah. we, we don't miss it because it's just this cushion of sound that kind of holds us up the entire time. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it really is symphonic, but it's like a chamber orchestra and everything about it feels it's, he's he's always clear that this is not meant to be a big thing. This is meant to be a little thing, a little detailed, glorious little show about little people in a way, you know, and little stories, um, and not Sweeney Todd, you know, or 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 you know, I guess even maybe Into the Woods or something, which are about I guess much bigger people and bigger situations and stuff. It's silly in some ways. All of the situations are ridiculous, really, you know, and and should could easily be maybe figured out with a simple conversation that just doesn't happen. 
<laughs> and we and we find that ridiculousness like in the strings, these short little brush strokes with the bow that that's keeping pipe things piping along, and then these beautiful woodwind long melodies that suddenly come out of nowhere, and then back to these little brushy strings. That's great. That's great. <laughs> the thing that's interesting to me about the 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 three quarter time premise of this show and the commitment that he made. We were talking not too long ago uh, about Forum in, in terms of our roundtable discussion and talking about how at that point earlier in his career, in a show that uh, committed to the, the concept of a burlesque musical, he just was like at straining at the reins to show I'm I'm much more than this. I can, and, and how he almost, he kept violating, ju just giving a simple burlesque show with very sophisticated songs like Pretty Little Picture. It's interesting that about a little more than 10 years later, he's happy to completely give over to a very restrictive um, concept that he must now stick to, to succeed throughout the whole show without completely like going, yeah, I don't want to do that three, four thing. I really feel that it should be this. And especially also coming off of Follies just bef you know, before this recently, where he was showing his talents for pastiche. Here I'm writing a song in the style of Rudolph Frimmel. Here I'm writing an Irving Berlin ballad. Here I'm writing something that feels real Cole Porter. And again, mm -hmm. he sets for himself a goal of restriction which of course, to some degree with these characters also, they're living in a very, very specific world of rules and regulations and expectations and how they can't really break out and express themselves. It is about corsets, you know, mm -hmm. uh, almost throughout the entire show. Um, I love that idea. It, it reminds me of two part, two things. One is back to that rules of three, it's also very much about the young, the middle age, and the old, you know, and you get that, those three very specific perspectives from, from you know, Frederica and Henrik on the young end to Desiree and he Frederick and Madame Arnfeld. You only get one perspective in the old, but in a way she's lived it all, so she doesn't need much more than that. But I also find interesting, Michael, is that I was thinking about Petra and how she kind of comes in and you're like, why and and brownie you played her beautifully i saw you do it it was great and you're like why is petra here and it struck me that maybe it's something about that very thing that she almost feels uncorseted she feels like she's yeah. separate it's almost like i've written this very beautiful people of, musical about these sort of silly upper crust people and here comes petra who's like i'm just a woman i'm a, I'm a working woman and i and i still go through these same kind of things or maybe she's better at it than all they are than all of them are or something but i thought that was interesting did you feel that brianna when you played it or did you have any sense of that idea yeah uh bill brown who directed the production i did we had lots of conversations about miller's son and liaisons being sister pieces right yes. about about them going down opposite sides of the same road um, and what we talked about a lot, and I think what maybe made it a little resonant in a different way, was that very last tag of Miller's son when she comes back to, and I will marry the Miller's son after going through him and the businessman and the Prince of Wales and talking about the possibility that her journey is the opposite and that in, in our eyes and our concept, we were making 
Frid, the son of a miller, and that this was a fun tryst. And it's the first time that she's actually given consideration to maybe I do want that first thing. And maybe all of this belief system has now changed and I'm ready to settle down with someone and have that life that I have looked kind of looked down upon for a long time, which is a lot to cram into one little line of a song. was the journey we were kind of taking with that and I think that goes along with the everyone having their path and then having the balls to stray from it a little bit at the end and and what that means mm-hmm. uh, I think that's so smart and I, I always love that last line because I hear it in some ways as also as uh, I'm gonna have to just capitulate and marry the guy that that's gonna be the obvious choice for me but I love what you're saying because that makes it that sort of does what the whole musical does which is like surprises you at the end that they actually get something that they actually want too, or that's good for them or something. Yeah. That's cool. It's optimistic. Yeah. And then if you do the show for six months, like we did, you think about it more and more and more. And then you're like, well, actually she could because of Frederick staying with Desiree and she's not going to be on the road. Well, she's Frederick's service and she's going to be there. So you get that whole like future vision from a long run of a show where you can develop that more and more and more. So cool. Mm-hmm. It's I cool that that song in sort of encapsulates, as you said, the whole show, because it doesn't make any, in some ways you're like, why is this song here? But you're right, in some ways it does sort of give you a sense of everything in a way. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was gonna say, Michael, that um, in this idea of him encapsulating himself in sort of one idea, I think he escapes that though through sort of these Eastern sounding tonalities and moments of intrigue like that we hear in um, liaisons or in uh, my favorite, which is perpetual anticipation. It's that little interlude that the Libus Leader women sing, you know, uh, as we go into act two. Um, and then we hear a little bit of it too, and it's, uh, it would have been wonderful with Count Magnus and Frederick singing in the garden. If she'd only been vicious, if she'd acted abused, or a bit too delicious, or been even slightly confused, if she had only been sulky, or bristling, or bulky, or bruised, it would have been wonderful. If, if, 
If she only was willful If she only had fled Or a little less skillful Insulted, insisting In bed If she had only been fearful Or married Or tearful Or dead It would have been wonderful But the woman was perfection And the prospects are grim That lovely perfection That nothing can dim Yes, a woman was perfection So I'm Sir, it would have been wonderful. So I think that he uses those moments as a way to, to step out of the box for just a minute of, of what the rest of the piece is. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what's so exciting about it is watching him wrestle with the commitment he made and yet find as many ways to go, but I can do it this way, but still play by the rules. And I can sprinkle in this and still play by the rules. There was even uh, one more element from what I'm understanding from the, when they were originally creating it um, of, of kind of building on the, the, the smiles of a summer night that Hugh Wheeler was trying to write it um, almost with the idea that uh, Madame Armfeld would in her playing of the of the cards uh, of the of the solitaire that she would reshuffle the deck and there were three different versions of the same story one in which um one of the characters kills themselves by the end one in which they do they don't get together with the person that you know and just showing variations of uh you know choices that we make and how we end up where we end up um and it could have gone this way, it could have gone that way, it could have gone this way type of a thing, which is so Chekhovian, you know, it's, 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 it gets you back to those, um, uh, the, the subtlety of the, the sort of, you know, human games within it. And of course, Sondheim is one of the great, you know, fan of games and puzzles and, and all of that. So, but it just wasn't working out. They just couldn't get that to, to function and ended up going where they, where they went with it. And, and one of the, the things that keeps getting mentioned in the reviews is the word operetta, that this is, a, that this is an operetta. Do we think this is an operetta? Or, and, and if so, what does that mean? Or was that the, just New York Times people being fancy? I feel like when, when they put that on shows in, in modern times, it just means hard to sing. Because it's fully, yes. it's fully a book musical, you know. I I think of that the long like the fifteen minute scene with Frederick and Desiree, in her chambers, and you're like, this isn't this isn't just tiny bits of dialogue trying to hold together music. It's a musical. It's the music's just really hard, right? I agree with you totally. I think it means hey, uh, they have legit singers. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna be legit. The tessiatura is super high. You're not gonna be able to fake it. But it's it's not really an operetta to me. It's just performed by opera companies, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's such yeah. a complicated book and a complicated story. I I not that operas aren't, but they're generally meant to sort of be stripped down to the most basic. And and this one is is tiny, but it's so intricate and so delicate. I think I don't know. I, I don't know if it really even matters because I, as you said, I don't even know what that necessarily means to call mm -hmm. it an operetta, mm -hmm. do you know? 
Well, and in some cases that can be hurled as a negative that somehow operettas are simplistic or mindless, um, less than, um, neither than, you know, opera nor the finest of musical comedy, or at least in the evolution, you know, of Rodgers and Hammerstein, that we moved away from op operetta into the more complicated. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a regression of some kind. I think at this point, though, it feels like in 1973, when we're thinking at a time on Broadway, that there is a great friction of, are we moving towards hair and Godspell and Two Gentlemen of Verona and moving you know, towards these you know, eventual mega musicals and what's happening to the great old you know, Broadway guys and dolls tradition or little me or something that's just silly that it seemed like this civilized return to, we can go in and, and we know we're gonna have a good time and be treated as intelligent audience members and not be asked to see something like Follies where a bunch of middle-aged white people are having a meltdown in front of you, that this is gonna have a happy ending, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, night music is, I mean, it is so sophisticated. And I think when um, people start labeling it as operetta or opera light, that it is a misnomer that implies that a certain audience isn't going to like it um, or be able to relate to it. And the thing is, it's incredible. You can relate to it very, very well. And just, I was, when I was listening to the um, New York City Opera version again, um, a couple of nights ago, I was just laughing because I had forgotten how many funny things are happening, happening along the way, especially in that whole now, later, soon sequence. And just the ramblings that happened with Desiree and Frederick and you must meet my wife. And so I think, that labeling it as an operetta is a problem because it implies everybody's not gonna like it. But I mean, there's something about this show's sophistication that just kind of pulls you in. Mm -hmm. There was something about that New York City opera production that uh, that just struck me at the time that seemed so cool and modern, uh, which is that gorgeous green grass filled hill that the whole thing was played on and they just brought out little little chairs and set it on the lawn. And it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, at least in my, my memory, a gorgeous production. And it did remind me, I love that you said Chekhov, because as I was thinking about this this time, kept thinking about Chekhov. And obviously that connection has something to do with sort of Swedish writer Bergman writing in this similar cold, you know, probably early 20th century, I'm assuming that's when he wrote it originally, uh, kind of, you know, story that, that connects to all of that Chekhovian way of thinking. But uh, it is very Chekhov and it has the same kind of heaviness and stakes and also uh, a sense and a, a sense of humor about itself and uh, also a sense of these are foolish little people yet that have these big, huge problems in their minds. And there's something all that I liked. I like that connection a lot. I think that's a good way of putting it. And a lot of theater people think Chekhov as something that's not for them, that's too serious, that's too classical. And the truth is Chekhov is, um, like we're saying about this, is delightful and anybody would fall in love with it. If you just give yourself over to the cherry orchard, you'll find it so funny and so real and, and such good connections and such amazing characters. All of those things that are here too. Mm -hmm. 
I think it reminded me a lot of Thornton Wilder plays as well mm. when I was younger. I I loved reading those plays and it has a a similar humor and drollness to it in a lot of ways that his plays do too. Mm -hmm. Well, there's something about this piece for me as I went back and was revisiting it, thinking, I can't think of, of more Sondheim pieces that have evolved and grown in depth for me and have gotten more abstract almost for me. And while it's source material, as you're saying, Nick, is very specific in its, you know, this Swedish film from 1955 by Ingmar Bergman. And we know what that means. That sort of, that, that wave of foreign films that presented a very specific European um, milieu and psychology that, it affected people like Woody Allen in his making of films and things like that. And yet the more that I come back to this piece, I feel it freeing itself from those specifics and really laying into the human comedy, which then I see Brianna where you're bringing in Thornton Wilder because that's what he wrote and William Saroyan to some degree as well. They just wrote about the comedy of being a human being, the simplistic frailty of, of, a, of this man who's married a child bride and this actress who just kind of can't give it up and is touring the tank towns and just, you know, the, the relationship that never happened and, and, now it comes back and we're, you're above, you're, we're totally in different places. And Charlotte, who's such a brilliant character, she's really in some ways the smartest character of all of them. And yet she's the dumbest when it comes to love. She's, mm -hmm. she's in love with Carl Magnus in, in such a way that she knows herself that it's stupid. She, 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 I think in some ways she, you know, probably hates herself for loving that man so much. And yet you begin to maybe even understand why that, I was thinking a lot about that when I was thinking about this and I thought maybe it's because he's so simple and he's so black and white and she's so complicated that she just wants somebody that's that simple. You know, I, I think the characters are are brilliant and they're brilliant because they're, they are sort of, and you know, Frederick is a, is a very uh, a smart, interesting character as well, but he's so stupid when it comes to love. You could say that about all of them really probably. Mm -hmm. Do you know? I mm -hmm. like that idea. I really love and just constant ramblings, especially in the opening. It it very much feels to me like uh, the old Looney Tunes cartoons where Bugs Bunny is is doing the red monster's nails and he's saying monsters are such interesting things. What is it? This little chatter, it's amazing. It's great. Uh -huh. It's great. Uh -huh. it's great. And yet the uh, there there is there is a deep darkness that when we're talking about you know the the sun and you have a moment of suicidal contemplation that goes yeah. and genuinely so and it doesn't seem comical you you see the way that they lay Imrick out that you go that could really be where he leads to and yeah. at the same time it ends up with a happy ending and it yeah. and and it ends up with a funny ending, but you see how the extreme you have to put in the extremes of of uh, uh, and also you know 
being a virgin 11 months later that you're going and 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 he's still well, thinking, and thinking it's going to happen it's going to happen and a duel between Carl Magnus and Frederick that surely looks like it's going to end in a death you know in one of their deaths mm -hmm. it's all over the place you're right that that sense of like of and that feels very Swedish to me too, that idea of, you know, this dark foreboding. And really, it almost seems like in the Swedish version that Henri Henrik would be dead by the end, you know, and that they would all end separately and that all that happy ending kind of wouldn't come together. I love what you said about Hugh Wheeler of this idea of like, any of these endings are possible, but today you're gonna get a happy ending, mm -hmm. but it could have been a bad ending today as well. And, like and one of them was that Heinrich did in fact hang himself. That, he, you know, there was no change of mind. And that's the way yes. that went for that young man, that he was going to live a life that would never allow him to join the group, that he would always be an outsider. Um, and that was the life he, that was that, again, from Madame Armfeld, that was the shuffle of the deck that he got. Um, that's the dark uh, conceptual production that I'd like to direct, Michael. That's really unhappy ending. You've got to stop pitching that to, to Marriott. They're not going to do it. <laughs> you just don't want it. Oh, God. You've got to think of yeah. something else. Yeah. Um, what in here, uh, what are in here are, are, are particular moments that, you know, we talk about this not you know, being very atypical at Sondheim. He didn't really come back to this. Maybe, maybe passion kind of gets a little bit into mm -hmm. this neighborhood, but with obviously much less humor than this. Um, but what are those moments in the show that absolutely are when you think Sondheim, you go, this is a Sondheim moment nobody well, else start, could have done this i'll start with my favorite one is just that opening number of now soon and later uh that you have three individual songs that sort of seem like they're going to be played out in one two and then three and they eventually then come together and intersperse with each other and then eventually the three characters actually take a, the opposite view so that Anne, who was saying soon is now saying later and henrik who was saying later is now saying uh, now, and you know, they're all saying, they're taking the other person's point of view in a way. Um, and uh, I mean, it ha for me, some of my favorite lyrics in the show are Henry or Frederick going through the A's and B's and trying to figure out if I go this way to try to seduce her versus this way. And I love his, his notion of reading to her, de Maupassant's candor would cause her dismay, the Brontes are grander, but not very gay. Her taste is much blander, I'm sorry to say, but was Hans Christian Andersen ever risque? Like, I mean, that whole book thing that he goes through, nobody else would go on that far of a, of a left path, you know, to just get to the end of it and say, nope, can't do that, gotta try another direction. And that feels very Sondheim to me. Mm -hmm. I think the ending chords of now, soon, later, when they do, when the, it goes to wider time signature and it becomes broad and they're doing those overlapping sequences. It's just one of my favorite musical moments ever.
also always been obsessed with the last three notes of It Would Have Been Wonderful, the, the great duet that Frederick and Carl Magnus have. And they end on this weird dissonant descending line together after this really jaunty and funny and clever duet. And then it leaves you on this, this little tweak of like, mm, I'm still Sondheim here. So satisfying. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Brianna. And I love that whole double read. Ba -ba 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 -da. That's like underneath them the whole time is, sir, sir. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, it's in praise of women that makes me think of Sondheim, uh, which is count the count song when he's trying to work out, did she really cheat on me? Um, and I think it's just the comedy of him going through all these possibilities. Would she, could she, did she, did they? Um, it makes me think of other instances when Sondheim characters like in Into the Woods are trying to work out what happens next. That's, mm -hmm. yeah. It so connects to pretty women too. Like I, you know, from from Sweeney that they're just moments that just remind me of pretty women at this, this sense of men sort of uh, not understanding them, but, but, but being in awe of them, you know, or, um, I love, also, I love that song too, that Carl Magnus song, uh, In Praise of Women. Uh, the last three notes of that, the woman's mind, which is not necessarily Sondheim, but it's so silly that I, it's just brilliant that Carl Magnus thinks, the louder I sing it, the more true it will be, you know? So great. The hip man, about that hip man, how can you slip and trip into a hip man? The papers, where were the papers? Or she might have taken back the papers. She wouldn't, therefore they didn't. The woman's mind. I think also, and Christy, I promise I'm not the person who brought the song to you in an audition room. <laughs> But having having lived with Miller's son for so long, uh, getting to discover the memorization process of any Sondheim patter song, but that one is especially weird and hard, and discovering all of the teeny internal rhymes and uh, assonance and all of those things that you find that that help it stay in your memory, so you say everything in the right order, but that just makes it make sense. And I hadn't realized that that is how I had memorized the song until a student of mine was singing it. And she was like, how, how do you memorize this? How do you keep track of it? And I actually sat down with pencil and paper and wrote out the lyrics and was like, what is it? What is it I tap into? And what I handed her looked like something out of a beautiful mind. I mean, she was like, thank you. I don't know what to do with this. But I was like, okay, so it's this S word and then this S word in the middle of the phrase, but that has this rhyme scheme that matches up with two lines later. So you know what comes and these letters go in alphabetical order. I mean, I sounded like a crazy person, but it's you, whenever you're able to take that time to break it down, you're just like, this is, this is genius. It is so smart. It's not just lyrics thrown in a line because they sound good. It's so much Sondheim fun. brings out the crazy in you, I think, because my senior recital of, of college, I decided I was going to sing Frederick and sing uh, now, and that I had two other actors in my class sing, you know, 
Anne and, and Henrik. And, uh, you know, I was 22 years old playing this middle-aged, very complicated man. I could memorize it. I did find memorizing it, but ultimately I really had no idea what I was saying throughout it. I mean, at least not the depths of what he's going through. But it, it's, it's, I think that it, that music, it, it draws you in because it's so, any actor I think gets drawn in because it's, it's, it's so, you just know that it's complicated and that it's exciting and all that. So I was drawn in at age 22, a little early. <laughs> Revisiting for this and and just listening to the score again, I thought to myself, "How can I get my stream player friends together so we can just play this? Like, I just want to, I just want to play this again and think about all the all the funny comments that happen in these lyrics and mm -hmm. in the storytelling because it's just invite so me, Christy. Great. I want to come. Definitely and will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For me, strangely, for a show that has as as much human comedy and and uh, promises an evening of, you know, farcical complications and all of this. Uh, when we talk Sondheim, it, it's only he would dare to put in a song like Every Day, A Little Death. Mm -hmm. And with that title into this show, um, which, which seems to me to be a companion piece a few years uh, coming uh, to Not A Day Goes By in, in a sense that it has this um, spoken, unspeakable quality to it, that we, we she's speaking the unspeakable, which is that how each day can grind you a person down. And that's something we just don't want to share that that is part of life, that there are things that just gnaw at us that nobody really can care that much about because it's not their problem and they don't want to go there. And yet he'll drop it into a show like this and it makes total sense. And it, it tells you everything you need to know about that character. Um, why, as you're saying, Nick, that she is the smartest and she is the, the, has the most rounded sense of emotion and therefore it can also have such dark depths mm -hmm. and make sense within this cast of clowns who are, you know, having duels and whatnot. But it is that element, I think, of that everybody could do. Carl Magnus could kill Frederick. He's not a buffoon like Milis Gloriosus. He's a genuine physical threat to the man. And that Heinrich could hang himself. He's yeah. that, he's in that dark a place. And that uh, that that the, that laying that foundation of possibility for the audience um, tunes you into this play in, in in a much different way, I think, than uh, than it would have if they would have just kept it as uh, a souffle of some kind. Yeah, yeah. You know. I feel like that song is so important because for women and especially a woman in her position, I mean, she's saying exactly what she should never say. She's showing somebody exactly what they shouldn't see and it's for the sake of hopefully preventing another woman's suffering but also that when she's speaking of carl magnus in that song the score becomes so romantic i mean you feel like all of a sudden you're listening to like tchaikovsky or or something in that middle section it's just Men are stupid, men are vain. Love is disgusting, love is insane. Are humiliating. 
exciting business. Oh, how true. Ah, well, every day a little death. Every day a little death. In the parlor, in the bed. On the lips and in the eyes. In the curtains, in the silver, in, in the, the buttons, in the bread, in the gestures, in the sighs. Every day a little sting. Every day a little die. In the heart and in the head. In the looks and in the lies. Every move and every breath, and you hardly feel a thing. Brings a perfect little so interesting about that song though and and what sets it apart from something like not a day goes by and what keeps it so in the world of that is that ah well that's in the middle of it right if it were just every day a little death and all of this and I could murder him but I love him and then in between every verse you just have that eh, oh well life goes on right it's right. just like that's the that lift and hope I think that that still runs throughout the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Diamonds are worth it. <laughs> I love Michael that you mentioned uh, a cast of clowns because of course the other title, I think that's such a, uh, a challenging title is sending the clowns because it does conjure up this thing that, you know, is not at all really what that song is about. It is in a way, but it can't, you know, many people think that it's, and then there's music videos, I think, with Judy Collins, where there's actually a clown in the background. And it conjures up this weird circus carnival thing that it, it's not at all about. And, and in a way, clown is the perfect word, especially considering that whole thing that Glennis Johns played this originally and that Sondheim had to give her like four, four syllable phrases because she couldn't sing more than four syllables or whatever. So send in the clowns. You, know, you can't sing, send in the comic actors you know, or whatever the pantalones or whatever else you could say. But I love it that it's, it really is right that it's clowns and it's funny as theater people that in, in when it really comes down to it, we are clowns. Like that's what we really are. We're a part of that world of clowning. We, we of course don't put on the funny wig and the nose always, we do sometimes do that too, but um, but you know, in a way, we are clowns—sad clowns, happy clowns—that we're creating these moments, and it's a it's a right title. It's just in some ways, it it feels like he almost did himself a disservice. Although that song became the hit from that show, but to this day, people have no idea what that song is about, and it's a brilliant, great, heartbreaking, you know, killer of a song if you have any clue what the context is. Mm -hmm. And, and how interesting that after so many great singers sang the song, and as you're pointing out, didn't necessarily clarify what it means for many of the lovers of this song who probably discovered it through Frank Sinatra or Judy right. Collins or Barbara Streisand, whoever else might have sung it. Sondheim still stands by the fact that in his, for him, Glynis John's rendition of it is still his favorite. When you are able to see video of her doing it, it is a rendition that rocks you back in terms of going, I had no real preparation to go, oh, that's the way you're supposed, that's the, what, the, what the composer intended. Is it for yeah. it to be done with this psychological um, weight in the scenes? 
there's a, there's a, go yeah. ahead, go ahead, Christy. Sorry, I never thought of this before, but I think that's why I, maybe I stayed away from this musical. I mean, uh, I remember the Judy Collins version and I remember the Sinatra versions and I, uh, and I remember the use of clowns and I was just like, what is this about? I had no idea what the musical was actually about. And even the title for compared to the rest of the show is just so different um, than I think, uh, you know, how, how the other, well, the, just the titles that he gave them. But yeah, I never thought about that. I think that's maybe why I had never had interest in pursuing what the show was about is because I knew this one song and I was like, what does this mean? I wanted to say that there's a video of Judy Dench doing it too, and it's pretty spectacular. You know, it's it, and you think here's Judy, who's not much of a singer. She doesn't have a, an astonishing. She's got a great voice, obviously, but not a very beautiful singing voice. But all she does is just acts the hell out of it, and it's so powerful and um, and and makes you realize, oh, this is what this song is really about. I don't think I've seen that, Glennis Johns. I'd like to see it, you know, the, the the video of that too.
the clowns. There ought to be clowns. Well, maybe next year. Also, that um, the the nature of this show requires great actors. And and when you when you look at how that song, it's one of these things where when we hear songs in cabarets or on albums or whatever, the importance of music theater songs in relation to the musical in which they were intended for. And how when you see Send in the Clowns in a production of uh, A Little Night Music and you understand the theatrical life of this actress, Desiree, and and now you start all of the the theatrical points that he's trying to make and comparisons of how clowns work in show business and that they're you know they they come in to relieve moments of great tension and you go oh, well, this all makes sense but you'll never get it from no matter if it's a great singer like Sinatra or, or Judy Collins but in this play you also it demands amazing actors because of also the length of the scenes, which Brianna kind of alluded to earlier to say that this is a musical with great scene work and wonderful scenes for actors. Yeah. 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 The, the film is such an example of how it doesn't work. And many before me have said this, that, you know, here you have a brilliant actress in Liz Taylor, but ultimately, She's so unsuited for the whole thing that it all begins to fall apart. And I don't know how much you guys have seen that movie, but the, really the end, I think, is a kind of a mess. And, the, and you know, Hermione is brilliant because, of course, she, she gets it all. But it's just such a, it, that whole film, I think, it suffers from people that, you know, that maybe their stardom was, was it, I mean, with Liz, probably that's what they were hoping for. But ultimately, the other important things all fell apart somehow. So, yeah, you're that right. Was, that was something I experienced re-watching the New York City Opera production of it, too, which I grew up with and loved. But now watching it 20 years later, probably, I don't think I've seen it since then. I was like, oh, there are definitely some some acting beats and line interpretations that probably could have been approached better, mm -hmm. but it's an opera company, you know, it's, like, right. it's only going to go so far. And I think it, it also made me appreciate much more other productions I've seen and been a part of, of it, where I'm just like, damn, those people were brilliant. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I've seen, you know, I don't know if any of you saw the recent Broadway revivals and I saw both of the, uh, of the lead cast with, Catherine Zeta-Jones and then uh, and Angela Lansbury, who were then replaced so excitingly by Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch. And um, I, I think too about, you know, when you go back to somebody like Linus Johns or you're talking about Angela Lansbury and you've got European actors, even though certainly Angela Lansbury spent a majority of her life in America, but essentially, you know, she and Catherine Zeta-Jones are Brits. And, um, and then you watch somebody like, Bernadette Peters and Stritch, and they don't in any way try to affect a false accent. And Stritch is just Stritch and it works. Yeah. Um, in a way that I look at like Elizabeth Taylor and go, it, it 
I, you see the logic of why they would have thought that Liz Taylor would have been a great idea for this. Um, she was very sick when it was happening and she had been injured and then she got injured again. And then she caught nearly had pneumonia when they were filming the outdoor scenes because she was just so frail. Um, and she had never done a musical. I mean, it was just, it was really handling somebody who was incredibly delicate. Um, whereas Glynis Johns got sick during the opening week of the show and they rushed her to the hospital and on the down low called Tammy Grimes and had Tammy Grimes coming to see the show in case she needed to go into it. And Gl Glynis Johnson, maybe it was, you know, I lived through World War II in Great Britain. There is nothing going to stop me from opening this show. I will be there on opening night. And God damn it, she was. You know, there was nothing going to take that away from her. You uh, always have all the inside tea, Michael. Do you know what Glynis had for dinner that night? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm making it right now. Um, you, Michael, did you know I only have one like impersonation or voice on my resume and it is Glynis Johns <laughs> and it's only there for in case I'm in a room with a super musical theater nerd. And Come it, on and do it. Okay. Yes, you've got to do it now. I've, I've only done it once and it was for Bill Brown auditioning for the show and I, I swear to God it's what got me booked. You've got to hear it. Come uh, on. <laughs> but I have to do it on another song. I shall marry the miller's son in my hand on the nice piece of property. Yeah. That's brilliant. Now I know why Tammy Grimes was called in because you sound like a mix of Glynis Johns and Tammy Grimes together. <laughs> the most useless impersonation ever. Brilliant. It can come in handy. She was amazing and she's still with us. She's still alive. She's still alive. She, she you know? is. I, I, I don't know, has she ever played Madame Armfeld? I don't know either. Wonderful for her. Yeah, truly, truly. Like, even in a reading, I mean, she's she's probably much too old for, for it now. Um, <laughs> but there you go. Who's, who's to say who's how old she is anyway? Who really cares, you know? <laughs> exactly, no, I mean, my gosh, to be able to, to, be able to see her. Um, and it's and in that film, you know, Nick, uh, uh, there were a few other men playing Frederick um, who just didn't work out. I think uh, 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 Peter Finch was originally supposed to be doing it. And then somebody after that who they fired. And then at the very last minute, Hal Prince was like, we're starting filming and just picked the phone and called Len Carrier and said, we need you. And he was not a movie star and certainly not somebody um, that you would it'd be, it'd be at the top of your list to put, uh, you know, opposite uh, uh, Liz, yeah, or because yeah. he just didn't have that uh, right. kind of a resume at the time. And I guess was just a wonderful, wonderful companion for her because of his um, sense of familiarity and confidence with the material that he had to be able to really hold her hand through much of it and and be there in the sound booth with her to help her along through the songs um which you know how, how lucky for her and lucky for him that he was able to capture his performance on film um yeah and given sadly their their romantic connection doesn't feel like it's there at all I, it's interesting that you say that because that i mean it feels they just don't you don't get that sense of fire from them which is what you would have thought she could bring you know, uh, better than almost anybody, but that's what, and you just feel how trepidatious she is about the material. 
you know, you feel that. You don't feel like she ever has, uh, she ever grabs that language and grabs that music. Right. And, and, and with casting with this, I have talked to many people who saw the original performance, the original production, who felt that even better than Len Cariou was the actor who took over after him, which was William Daniels, uh, mm -hmm. who we know from 1776, most famously as John Adams, who you would think, well, what a strange, you know, he seemed so, so tight. And he was about 10 years older, but then it really does make sense because Len Carey was in his 30s when he did it on Broadway and you're kind of going, <laughs> you know. So it's yeah. so much about about casting. And that's why I think that this show really give, can give itself to a wide array of actors. And, and, it, and it's also not about white actors playing Swedes. This, this is a universal human story. Of, mm -hmm. of love and the follies of love. And, and I could see it being done in, in just so many ways. Frederick, are you all right? My son and my adorable one ran off together. Does it hurt? It hurts, spiritually. Well, I think I should get up and confront the world, don't you? Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? You here at last on the ground. Likely life is to lose one's son, one's wife, and practically one's life within an hour, and yet to feel relieved. Yes, relieved. And what's more, considerably less ancient. Ah, oh, Desiree. Poor Frederick. No. No, no. We will banish poor from our vocabulary and replace it with coherent. Coherent? Don't you remember your manifesto in the bedroom? A coherent life after so many years of muddle? You and me. Make way for the clown. Applause for the clowns.
what's so so you know potent in the music. Uh, why don't we, you know, we, we, I like to wrap it up with, um, you know, just sort of a summation for us that if we if we met somebody who said that they have never seen a Little Night music and they're going to see their first production and it's a class A production of the show tonight, what would you tell them? Oh, here's what you can expect from this show. Here's what you're gonna, here's what you're about to experience for the first time. The most sumptuous music and score and a lot of laughs and probably some tears. I've tried to do this for many people and I end up going on for a half an hour and getting very emotionally involved myself and they oftentimes are looking at me like, yeah, it sounds okay. But no, I end up, I, I can't help but go into every single song along the way. And I think what makes it so exciting and special in my mind is that you have an ensemble of essentially 10 characters that are each doing, that each have these great moments throughout and they're all well-developed. And yes, Sondheim is clearly focused on these two middle-aged characters, but he's really given every one of those, this ensemble of 10, a beautiful moment about the follies of love. And I think that's what's so great about it. Brianna totally took what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm going to say it will make you consider whether or not to have an affair and it'll <laughs> tell you why maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> or should. Or should. Or should. Be fun. It could be fun. Or should. And could work out in the end. And to your point, even about his focus on, on, on the middle-aged couple, one of my most, most favorite scenes is when, um, the grandmother and the granddaughter sit down together and she says, let me see the world through your, I've seen the world through my eyes. Let me experience, just take a moment and go back and see the world through your eyes because I know what it looks yeah. like now, but you right. don't. And I, I just want to go back there. Uh, yeah. it's, it's again, it's just this, you know, circular waltz uh, yeah. and beautiful story of life. That is this show. Great. Thank you so much for joining me and, and talking about this beautiful musical. Uh, I, I wanna go back and listen to it again right now. It's just, uh, you've inspired me, three of you. But thanks so much and have a great day, everybody. Thanks, thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Thank